you and I need to cultivate a spirit of patience toward other Christians. And the chief way that we can do that, you want to be patient with others? Start by being honest about your own depravity. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom will continue his current series with part six of The One Another's. Last time, we began to look at the four attitudes God desires believers to have when showing biblical love towards other believers. We are to be of the same mind because we all have the mind of Christ. We are to be humble because Jesus humbled himself to be a servant for us. We are to be patient because Christ is daily patient with us. And we are to have and to show genuine family affection for one another. But why are those four attitudes so essential? Is it just so we get along better? Or is it for something far greater? Keep all that in mind as we join our teacher now on The Word Unleashed. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. This word regard describes carefully evaluating the evidence and coming to a verdict. It's like with a jury. A jury considers the evidence and determines a verdict. He says, that's what I want you to do. And what's the verdict we're to come to? That others are more important than we are. It means that we're to see everyone else as more deserving of honor and respect than we are. You say, well, how can I develop that kind of attitude? Well, think for a moment. You don't know everyone else the way you know yourself. You know every wretched thing there is to know about you. But 1 Corinthians 13 tells us we're to believe the best about everybody else. So if you really take an honest look at yourself and you really believe the best about everyone else, then it's not so difficult to believe they're more deserving of honor and respect than you are. That's what Paul is saying. Notice how else humility expresses itself in verse 4. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. It means to seek the welfare of others, the needs of others, before I seek my own. Paul puts it a different way in 1 Corinthians 10.24. He says, let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Wow. This is the mindset you and I are to have toward each other. This humility that causes me to think of others as deserving of more honor and that puts their interests and needs ahead of my own. We see this in a picture, a beautiful word picture in 1 Peter. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter also addresses this issue of humility and how important it is in our interaction with each other. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, in the middle of the verse he says, All of you, everybody in the church that I'm writing to, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. All of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another. Clothe yourselves is a very rare Greek word. It, it's only here in the New Testament. It refers to tying on the white scarf or apron of a slave. It was used that way literally in secular Greek. You see, in, in the Greek culture, 
There was a white scarf or apron that every slave wore, and that's what distinguished them from being a freeman. As you walked down the street, you could tell who was a slave and who wasn't. Peter says, I want you to tie on the apron or scarf of a slave. What is Peter remembering? He's remembering that fateful night before our Lord's crucifixion when Jesus himself took, out, took off his outer garment there in John 13, girded himself with a towel, and wash the disciples' feet. He's saying, this is the mindset I want you to have. I want you to think of yourself as a slave to others. Willingly become the servant of others. Do you honor the gifts and good of others before you honor your own? Do you see everyone else as deserving of more honor and respect than you do? Do you seek the welfare of others and their needs before you seek and meet your own? You see, before we can truly, as we learned last week, before we can truly build each other up, and before we can serve one another, we must first develop the attitude of humility. Because if we aren't humble, then we're never going to put others ahead of ourselves. We're never going to regard their needs and concerns before we regard our own. We're never going to honor them more than we honor ourselves. And so this is absolutely foundational to our interaction with each other. In fact, let me put it to you this way. Pride is the enemy of all relationship, and good relationships, godly relationships, can only be built where there is humility. You say, well, how can I get there? All of us are proud. We're by nature captivated by ourselves and by our pride. How do we get from pride to humility? Peter tells us right here in 1 Peter 5. There are three commands in verse 5 and verse 6. Three commands built around that proverb that's there in all caps in your Bible in verse 5. The proverb is the argument. Three commands around that proverb are the how-to. You want to be humble? Here it is. Number one, Submit to authority in your life. Notice what he says in verse 5. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders. This has, the elders here is not talking about older people. It's talking about the leaders of the church. Notice the first four verses are all about the office of elder. Also, Peter uses this verb, be subject, six times. Every other time it's talking about authority and your response to authority. This is exactly what Peter is saying. You want to be humble? Then start by submitting yourself to the duly constituted authorities God has put in your life. Whether it's parents or a husband or elders or government or an employer or whatever it is, start by responding properly, submitting your will to the will of the authorities God has put in your life. Secondly, become a servant. We saw it in the middle of verse 5. All of you, put on the apron of a slave. Serve other people. And thirdly, if you want to be humble, subject your will voluntarily to God's will. Look at verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Those are the three steps on the path from pride to humility. Now, if we can have the attitude of humility toward one another... It leads naturally to our third attitude, and that is the attitude of patience. Patience. 
If we're going to relate properly to each other, we need to have the attitude of unity, we need to have the attitude of humility, and we need to have the attitude of patience. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. This is, again, one place where Paul addresses this issue. In Ephesians 4 verse 1, he's just finished the sort of doctrinal thrust of the epistle, and now he comes in chapter 4 verse 1 to the implications of that doctrine in life. And he begins verse 1 by saying, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And notice that one way we can walk in a manner of worthy of the calling with which we've been called is in patience. Verse 2, with patience. This word patience is the same word that's used to describe God's patience. In fact, in Exodus 34, verse 6, that great self-revelation of God, when Moses watches God and hears God recite his name, and God says, I am slow to anger. In Hebrew, the expression is, I am long of nose. It takes me a long time to get hot. That's what God is saying. When the Septuagint translators chose a Greek word, they chose this word, patient. Patience is the virtue that overlooks the weaknesses of others, that endures personal wrongs rather than immediately erupting in anger and seeking revenge. And it's required of us. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Very clear that this is a responsibility we have to each other. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is... Paul gives these sort of staccato commands at the end of chapter 5. He says in verse 14, We urge you, brethren, and here he gives a number of categories of troubled people in the church. As elders, we often come to a verse like this to consider how it is we ought to respond to the person we're dealing with. Notice what he says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, warn those who are out of step with Scripture, encourage the faint-hearted, that is, the faint-hearted are those who, are, who have, are discouraged, who are downcast. Encourage them. Help the weak. The weak are those who are perpetually spiritually weak, who need someone strong to help hold them up. And then he says, but I want you to be patient with everyone without exception. This is required of our interaction with everyone. What does it mean to be patient? Colossians 3, verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, I want you to put on a heart of compassion, of kindness, of humility, gentleness, and patience. Now notice here how the word patience is followed by two participles that further explain it or that give us practical expressions of patience. Verse 13, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. These two participles, bearing with and forgiving, are two practical expressions of this patience we're to have. Bearing with literally means showing tolerance for, enduring, putting up with the weaknesses and failures of others. It's not talking about excusing sin. Rather, it's talking about exercising the same kind of patience toward others that God exercises toward us. Notice the second participle, forgiving. And then we're told how we're to forgive in the same way that we have been forgiven by the Lord. We're to have a forgiving spirit. 
patience expresses itself like that. Now let me ask you, what do you think are the primary ways that in the church we fail to be patient with each other? I really think there are two of them. I think one way we fail is by being slow to forgive the faults and sins and affronts of others. We are so naturally grudge holders, aren't we? We're so naturally prone to want to be slow to forgive. We just saw that we can't do that here in Colossians 3, back in Ephesians 4. We have to forgive. I think the other way, though, that we're often not patient with the Christians around us is by not giving them room to grow. Not giving them room to grow. You know, I once was having lunch with John MacArthur, and we were, we were talking about several different things, and I threw this question out at him that I thought was a pretty good question and that would at least require him a few minutes to think about. I said, what do you think is the biggest mistake spiritual leaders make? Well, he didn't even hesitate. He didn't pause. He said, oh, that's easy. He said, I can tell you it's easy because I made it constantly early in my ministry, and I see it all the time with guys that go out into ministry. And he said, here's what it is. It's being impatient with people. You see, too often we fail to understand the time it takes for people to be built up in their faith, the time and effort required for us to reach spiritual maturity. I mean, think about the apostles. For 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for three to three and a half years, the Son of God discipled them. And on the night before his crucifixion, they're arguing about who's the greatest. And we expect to teach our kids or other Christians in the church something one time or for them to hear it and say, well, what's so hard? I mean, it's chapter and verse right here. What's wrong with you? Again, I'm not talking about excusing sin. I'm talking about acknowledging the reality that spiritual growth and maturity take time. It's not an accident that the image of physical growth is used to illustrate the image of spiritual growth. You and I need to cultivate a spirit of patience toward other Christians. And the chief way that we can do that, you want to be patient with others? Start by being honest about your own depravity. Be honest about your own heart. You know your sin. You know your struggles. If you're like me, you know how slow you are to learn, how slow you are to obey. I am convinced that those Christians who are the hardest on other people are those who do not fully comprehend their own sinfulness. In fact, there's an interesting verse in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, where the writer of Hebrews is talking about the high priest, and he says the high priest is able to deal gently. Why? Because he himself is beset with weaknesses. I think when we really grasp our own weaknesses and sins, the easier it is for us to be gracious and patient with others. I think a second way we can cultivate this spirit of patience not only by being honest about our own depravity, but secondly, by thinking often about God's patience and forgiveness of us. Think about what God puts up from you, and it'll make you a little more patient with the people around you. Our orientation, the proper alignment of our attitudes toward one another is to be one of unity, number one. Number two, humility. Number three, patience. And the fourth basic attitude we're to have toward each other is affection. Affection. Five separate times in the New Testament, Paul and Peter command the Christians they write to, quote, 
greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, some of you just got a little nervous, didn't you? We can't ignore these passages, folks. Romans 16, 16, 1 Corinthians 16, 20, 2 Corinthians 13, 12, 1 Thessalonians 5, 26, 1 Peter 5, 14. In all of those places, we're told to greet one another with a kiss or to greet one another with a holy kiss. What does that mean? You're hoping it doesn't mean what it sounds like it means. You have to understand the culture in which these commands came. In the culture of the first century, and even in the Jewish culture leading up to that, really all the way back, there were three common settings in which kisses occurred. First of all, as a courtesy to guests in your home. As a courtesy to guests. That was considered to be such an intimate thing, to invite someone into your home, that as a courtesy, you kiss them on the cheek as a, as a way of greeting them. And in fact, in Luke chapter 7, verse 45, Jesus rebuked Simon the Pharisee, you remember, who invited him into his home? And he said, when I came in, you didn't give me a kiss. You didn't greet me in that way. You didn't appropriately and courteously respond to me. A second setting in which the kiss was common in that culture was to express deep affection for family members. To express deep affection for family members. Of course, we understand this with spouses, both Romantically and non-romantically, there is the kiss with parents and children, though. It occurs as well. In fact, you remember Jesus tells the parable in Luke 15 of the prodigal son. What happens when the prodigal son gets home? The father falls upon him and just keeps on kissing him, welcoming him home. It even happens with brothers. Back in Genesis 45, verse 15, when Joseph finally is reunited with his brothers, we're told he was kissing them. A third setting in which the kiss occurred in that culture was as an expression of affection for close friends. The most graphic illustration of this is between David and Jonathan. When they know they're going to be parted in 1 Samuel 20, verse 41, David and Jonathan kissed each other. By the way, this makes the kiss of Judas even more disgusting. It was the kiss of a close friend. It was a way of saying in, in Mark 14, 45, when he kisses, comes up and kisses Jesus there in the Garden of Gethsemane, I am one of your dearest and closest friends. Now, it's in these last two categories, the affection for family and the affection for the closest of friends, into which these New Testament commands to greet one another with a holy kiss fall. And of course, as you probably know, they actually became literally kisses became part of the culture of the church. The tradition of the kiss between Christians continued for a long time in the early church. And again, some of you are getting a little uneasy. You can relax. It's okay. Justin Martyr, for example, said, after prayers, we salute one another with a holy kiss. Tertullian, writing about 150, says, or mentions rather the practice that was commonly occurring in the churches. Origen, who lived from 185 to 253 about, he said the custom was delivered to the churches that after prayers the brothers should salute one another with a kiss. It actually became a part of the order of service so that after prayer and especially before the Lord's table, kisses were shared. But as you might imagine, there were abuses and excesses and so correctives began to put it, be put into place. One of the earliest is from a document called the Apostolic Constitutions 
which says, then let the men apart and the women apart salute each other with a kiss in the Lord. Clement of Alexandria, writing about 150 AD, says, there are some, quote, who make the churches resound with kissing. The shameless use of a kiss occasions foul suspicions and evil reports. So eventually, the practice was completely abandoned. And that's okay because it was culturally conditioned. But here's the question. What is the enduring spiritual lesson for us from greet each other with a holy kiss? This is different, by the way, than love. We're commanded to love our enemies, but we're not commanded to kiss our enemies. We're to think of each other. What this command means is that we're to think of each other as the closest of friends or even as family. We are to hold each other in such affection that we automatically display appropriate physical expressions of affection. You say, well, what's appropriate? Well, that's culturally conditioned. Let me ask you this. How do you greet close friends or family? Did a handshake, a hug, a sideways squeeze, a kiss on the cheek? Whatever is culturally appropriate, we are to express our affection. We're to have, first and foremost, and to express our affection for each other. But notice there's a crucial caveat that's added to this command. Often when it occurs, it says it's to be a holy kiss. Here's the point. Whatever the form of greeting, whether it's a handshake, a hug, or a kiss, it's always to be holy and pure. We're never to use this command as a cover for pursuing some impure interest. But here's the deal. It's not so much the form of the greeting that matters. The Scripture's point is much deeper. Here's the point. We are to think of each other with an attitude of genuine affection. Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. We are to have an affection for each other that is usually reserved for family members and closest of friends, and we're to show that in appropriate ways. So our basic attitudes as we interact with each other are to be unity, humility, patience, and affection. Now why are those four attitudes so important? It's not just so we get along better. No, all of those attitudes are found in perfection in our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we exercise them, when we hold them, we reflect our Lord to others. We are to be of the same mind because we all have the mind of Christ. Or as Jesus says in John 15, 15, you're no longer slaves but friends because I've told you what's on my mind. We are to be humble because our Lord was lowly and humble in heart and he humbled himself to be a servant for us. We are to be patient because Christ is daily patient with us. Remember how he was described as one who wouldn't break a bruised reed and one who wouldn't snuff out a dimly burning wick? It's patience. We are to have and to show genuine family affection for each other because we enjoy what Paul calls the affection of Jesus Christ. You see, these four attitudes are nothing less than the mindset of Jesus Christ himself. And you and I are to have them as we interact with each other in the church to the glory of the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ.
That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part six of The One and Others. We'll have part seven for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. But Tom, before we end our time today, how about sharing a closing thought with us? Friend, I think as you think over that list of commands toward us, how we are to respond to one another, I suspect you're struck in the same way that I am, and that is these are always difficult attitudes to demonstrate, but how much more that is true today. And yet we need to remind ourselves that these attitudes are the timeless expectation of Jesus Christ for his church. They don't change with circumstances or difficult times or or even political disagreements. Biblical truth doesn't change over time. It remains the same. We are commanded to love others in these ways. And I just think it's important for each of us to ask ourselves pointedly, are we exhibiting these attitudes toward our brothers and sisters in Christ? Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Music